Artemis, take three. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's next moon mission could take flight this week. Artemis 1 is poised to launch from Kennedy Space Center as early as Wednesday morning. The mission has faced a handful of obstacles from engine issues, a gas leak, and most recently, riding out a hurricane. We'll speak with a former NASA engineer about the challenges of launching a new vehicle and what's at stake during this launch attempt. Then, we'll hear from retired NASA astronaut about Artemis and how this moment in exploration is inspiring us to take better care of our own spaceship, Earth. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. NASA's massive SLS rocket weathered Nicole when the storm made landfall as a hurricane last week. The agency says the vehicle felt winds of up to 80-some miles per hour, but didn't experience any major damage. It's the latest challenge for NASA engineers to launch this rocket, which has been long delayed and over budget. Two previous attempts were scrubbed due to engine issues and a hydrogen leak. But NASA will try once more in the early hours Wednesday. Here to talk more about the missions and the conversations engineers likely had leading up to this moment is Philip Metzger. He's a former NASA engineer and now a researcher with the Florida Space Institute. Philip, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. There were two previous launch attempts of, of, of Artemis. Just, just remind our listeners what some of the challenges were uh, with those two previous launch attempts that, that led to a scrub. Well, the, the space launch system was designed using space shuttle heritage technologies as a cost savings and as a way to keep the existing contractors working because NASA wants to keep the aerospace community fully engaged. So, um, so it was based on space shuttle technology, and that meant that it was going to have to use liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen for the propellant. Now, liquid hydrogen is notoriously difficult to work with. The space shuttle needed to use hydrogen because of the extra thrust you get in order to put that, that type of vehicle in orbit. Um, and so now on the space launch system, we, we have the hydrogen, not because you necessarily have to use hydrogen, but because it's shuttle heritage hardware. Mm-hmm. And so we inherited a lot of challenges. Um, hydrogen leaks because the atoms are very tiny and, um, and it's extremely cold. It's colder than any other rocket propellant. So when you chill everything down to flow the liquid hydrogen, all the materials shrink and start changing shape and little tiny leaks can develop. Um, I think it's going to take a while to work through these. I think eventually they will get the leaks under control. Hopefully they do now. So hopefully there won't be a, another scrub. Um, but it's just a learning curve you have to go through when you work with hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the cause of of one of the scrubs. Now, as we go into the third attempt here, SLS is coming off of withstanding a storm, which which was a, a Category 1 hurricane when it made landfall on Florida's East Coast last week. What are some of the issues that were related to that? And and are there any concerns that some of those issues may crop up on some of these launch attempts this week? Well, um, hopefully they're going to have it all worked out. Um, now, hopefully they already have it all worked out and there shouldn't be any further problem because of the winds. But the the fact that they went through hurricane winds 
does cause some um, some issues. They have to go through the requirements. The vehicle is only rated to withstand a certain amount of wind load. So they have to look at, well, what would happen if we exceeded those thresholds by a certain amount? Um, could anything have been damaged? Does the structure of the vehicle get stressed too much? You know, rockets are made for a lot of force in the vertical direction, but they're not made to withstand any significant force in the lateral dimension. So, um, and in, in order to make a rocket very lightweight, they're very weak in that direction. So, um, so they have to go back and look at the requirements, do some modeling of the of the structures maybe, and then they have to present this at the flight readiness review to assure the managers that everything is okay and it's going to be safe to launch this rocket. Mm -hmm. What are some of those conversations like? I mean, I know the way that engineers communicate with, with managers has evolved over the years, especially after two tragedies with the space shuttle program. But what are those conversations like when, when there is a risk or a possible risk that an engineer or a team of engineers may identify and they're presenting it to these mission managers. How does that conversation work? And then how do those mission managers make those decisions? Right. Well, it's an extremely high pressure situation because you're dealing with a launch delay that it's going to cost millions of dollars. And um, you're dealing with national level pressure to get the launch off because Congress is watching, the people that provide funding and oversight, they're all watching. Um, so it's it's not a small stakes situation. It's very high pressure. And um, you can get this idea like, we're gonna go, 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 we're gonna launch. And once you've got launch fever, you might, well, because of cognitive bias, because of normal human weakness, you will end up tending to play down problems that would get in the way of launch. You're going to have a natural bias to, to um, pretend like it's not as bad as it looks. Now, NASA works really hard to overcome these natural cognitive biases. So they have processes in place, including checks and balances. They have a, a, a board that reviews the, um, the, the arguments, whether something is safe to launch or not. They have documented requirements. And if you violate any requirement, you have to, you have to go to the board with your case, you know, with all your evidence, your experiments, your data, your analysis, and you have to make the case to the program managers that it's okay to waive the requirement one time and go ahead and launch anyways. So, um, but it's a, it's a very stressful process um, in the weeks leading up to, or in the week leading up to one of these um, board reviews, all the engineers in the office will be huddled together um, going over the analysis, arguing among themselves. Eventually, a position will emerge, like the, the consensus in the engineering group is, yeah, we're safe to fly. Or the position may emerge, no, we really shouldn't launch. We need to roll the vehicle back. And um, either way, you have to go make your case, and the board is going to grill you to find out, did you really do a good job? Did you do a great analysis or not? Um, they're gonna push back on your decision and um, and you have to be able to justify it. So it's a, it is a rough process, but it was designed that way. 
um, in order to try to avoid having another accident like we had with the Challenger and the Columbia accidents. Mm -hmm. And that does seem like a very robust process that has checks and balances in it, as you mentioned. But the storm hit on Thursday and the first launch attempt is on Wednesday. Does this seem like a, a rushed review post storm? Well, um, I do think they probably have some launch fever going on. Uh, this is just me guessing, looking at it from the outside. But um, I, I would imagine uh, this program is is way over budget and is way behind schedule. They've they've had um, political opposition, um, so there's a split uh, a split view on this rocket. Some people love the rocket, some people hate the rocket, think it should be canceled. So I know there's got to be a lot of pressure to try to get the launch off, to try to make it successful, to keep the Artemis program on schedule. And that's got to have some influence. But on the other hand, I'll say this, that um, it's it's very probable that the, the vehicle could withstand higher wind loads than the requirement said. Mm -hmm. and part of the reason for that is that it, the vehicle has to withstand the vibration of the launch environment, the acoustics of launch. And as a researcher who has looked into the physics of modeling the launch acoustics, um, I can tell you the physics are very hard to predict and we do not have really good models of launch acoustics. And because of that, they have to over-design the structure of the vehicle somewhat. And so because of that, we know that there is some margin built into the vehicles already. Um, this is just the way rockets are. Um, so if they had winds that were close to the, to the requirement, um, even if they went a little bit over, my guess is that this is not a major concern. This is the kind of thing where you can do inspections, look for any obvious damage, look for stuff that may have hit the vehicle or blown off the vehicle. And if there is nothing like that, then a little bit of analysis is probably all that's required. And I'm sure they can get that done in the amount of time that they've had so far. Mm -hmm. Does the fact that this is an uncrewed mission change the way that engineers may approach uh analyzing or surveying these risks and mission managers making decisions based upon those analyses? Does that make a difference at all? Well, I think normally it would, but in this case, I don't think so. And the reason why is because eventually this vehicle is going to be used for human launches. And furthermore, it's such a high visibility program that there's, there's no way they're, they're going to want to, um, take any risk whatsoever with it. So, um, so I, I'm pretty sure that um, they're not going to dumb down the requirements below the normal human level rating that they've already developed for this vehicle. Mm -hmm. Philip, this is a brand new vehicle. There's obviously a lot of complexities that go into a brand new vehicle. Um, but this is an extremely important chapter in NASA's moon ambitions with the Artemis program. Just exactly what is at stake when it comes to the Artemis one launch? Right. Well, if you have a launch accident, there's going to be a review. Um, even though there are no humans involved, this is like a $4 billion rocket. And 
had to have $4 billion of the government money explode is going to attract a lot of attention. So if there were an accident, it would result in a very sim serious investigation and that investigation would take time and it would, it would cause a delay to the Artemis program. Um, and um, NASA does not want to delay it. You know, we're trying to get back to the moon as quickly as possible. It's important for the, the image of the United States internationally that we have a very competent, successful space program. And um, so uh, I think if they did have an accident, it would cause a delay. It would cause additional bloating of the, of the costs. There would probably be increased calls for the architecture of the program to be changed. Um, a lot of people are arguing that that we should retire the space launch system pretty quickly and replace it with commercial rockets, which are a lot less expensive. Um, the reason we, we're not doing that right now is because those commercial rockets are not yet certified for human launch. They're not yet flying. Um, you know, I'm talking about big rockets that are capable of throwing a lot of mass toward the moon. So, um, but, there, there will probably be additional people calling for a change in the mission or in the program architecture, changing the rockets that are used. So there's really a lot at stake here, and this is this is why I'm I'm sure NASA is not cutting corners on the requirements. Mm -hmm. And and in about the the thirty or forty five seconds we have left here, uh, Philip, if all does go well this week. How quickly could we see astronauts uh, be flying to the moon? So um, in the previous presidential administration, they were saying 2024 was the target. Um, I went on record saying I don't believe that's possible. Um, but I, I thought it was a good goal because it'll keep us moving quickly. Um, I don't even think 2025 is really realistic. I think maybe 2026. Congress wanted 2028. I think that's the window we're looking at um, somewhere around the 2026 to 2028 or even slightly later time frame in order to get human boots back on the moon again. Um, hopefully, hopefully the launch will go off. Hopefully we'll make a lot of great progress and we'll get at the beginning of that window. Lots, lots to look forward to. Philip Metzger is a former NASA engineer. He's now a planetary science researcher at the Florida Space Institute. Philip, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure, Brendan. Still to come, we check in with retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott about Artemis, art, and advocacy for our planet. Are We There Yet is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. All eyes are on Artemis, including those of Nicole Stott. She's a retired NASA astronaut who served on the International Space Station, clocking more than 103 days in space. She's also no stranger to the show. We've had her on to talk about art and exploration and her call for us to become better advocates for this planet. She's also the author of Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brendan. Good to be here. Well, I have to I have to pick your brain on Artemis launching this week, potentially launching this week. And... I want your perspective because you are a former astronaut. You've gone to space. This is a brand new vehicle. 
from an astronaut and engineer's perspective, what are you what are you going to be watching for uh, when Artemis does launch? Well, I think I'm going to fo- you know follow along like everybody does, just watching all of those stages as it you know uh, you know gets to this point where it's traveling to the moon, where it's orbiting the moon, where it's you know doing its observations and then you know making its way home again. Um, I I think NASA put out a really cool graphic that if you know, if everybody hasn't um, downloaded it yet, they should, that just gives you all these like little, the little steps of the way that you can expect um, for the Artemis mission. And of course, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, oh man, you know, let's really wanting to see this go successfully, right? And, and imagining my friends on board as, you know, the first people are heading back, you know, to the moon in over 50 years. I really, I think there's so much, um, value in that from the standpoint of the kind of future we have to look forward to that uh very excited for all of that you know we've talked about this previously um as spacex was getting ready to to launch your friends uh bob bankin and doug hurley um and the things that they might be watching in those you know that uncrewed mission that first went up what do you think the astronaut corps is thinking about right now when when they're they're waiting for for artemis to launch and most of them will, will be out there because I saw them at the last attempts in their, in their blue flight suits walking around. What's, what do you think is going through their mind during, during a mission like this? Well, I think that, I mean, I think they're following along closely which, with each of those steps again. I think they're um, looking at it maybe from a little different perspective of not just as each one of these things successful on this uncrewed flight that, that's happening right now, but when we do take that next step and put you know, the warm, fleshy bodies inside of the vehicle, what at each of those stages are those crew members going to be doing? And I think they're considering that like, okay, here's where I'd be monitoring these things. Here's where I might actively be able to, you know, control something. Um, Here's where I just have to sit back and let the vehicle do its thing and communicating with the ground, but really looking at more like that human machine interface um, of the whole Artemis one mission to I just really imagine themselves in that place and how they'll be interacting with um, the whole system when there are people on board. This is a new vehicle. It's it's run into a few issues at the pad. There was an issue with the engine. There's the hydrogen leak. Um, and then also it went through a, a hurricane, essentially um, hit hit the space coast. Engineers and mission managers are, are having those conversations as to, you know, whether or not to fly this thing. As, as someone who's been an engineer, what, what are those conversations like when you have all of these different things and, and you've, you've got to make that decision to, to go or no go? What, what's it like in that room? Well, well, I think it's probably pretty intense. You know, um, I think everybody, you know, especially through the lessons we've learned over time, everybody wants to um, allow all the voices to be heard. Um, that may have something to say about whether we should or shouldn't do this kind of thing. Um, I think underlying it all, which is something that I love about the way we solve problems in the space community, um, and these are the this is was the motto of, you know, dear friend Jay Honeycutt, um, which was, you know, this approach of just like here's how we can, not why we can't. Like go knowing there's the vibe in that room where everybody it's not about, oh, we're just going to do it, but it's about, okay how can we make this happen um, in the way we need to make it happen safe, you know, within a relatively, you know, reasonable period of time, considering all of 
uh, the different things that have gone into this, like a hurricane that just came through with a vehicle at the pad. And um, I think that that allowing and um, respecting all the voices that have to come into it is a really important part of this. And what's at stake for this mission? I mean, this is a very important mission for for NASA's moon ambitions. I mean, what is at stake for this for this mission to go right? Well, I think everything going forward is at stake with it, with what we're looking forward to in terms of uh, establishing a permanent settlement. You know, once and for all, getting that permanent settlement on the moon, in the moon to, um, you know, to leverage that, you know, I think about like this beautiful partner that we have in space um, that's just, I, I don't know, I imagine the moon just waiting for us to finally get there again, right? And, um, and to, to, to utilize that place in a thoughtful, you know, sustainable, I'll even use that word, way that allows us to um, explore what's there to take advantage of it in a way that allows us to explore further from Earth. Um, and then also to bring back all of the goodness that's there and not necessarily physically, right? But to be in that place and be able to bring back things to Earth um, in a way that allows us to solve, again, solve some of our greatest planetary challenges. You know, the source of energy, the sun that just behaves with the moon in a way that we can capture and send back to Earth. I'm so looking forward to that. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Nicole Stott. She is a former NASA astronaut and author of the book, Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. Nicole, I want to change gears a little bit here and talk about um, something that that you and I talked about when we first met, which, which is art. Um, and when I first saw the images of coming back from the James Webb Space Telescope, you were the first person who I thought of because <laughs> I saw these images and I'm like, this is this is absolutely beautiful. And I want to know what Nicole Stott thinks about this. What was your reaction to these just incredibly bright and crisp and vibrant images of our universe? I think just stunned, really, because, you know, I think we all, we look at the pictures that have come back from space um, of some of these places already, you know, Hubble in particular comes to mind and how we went from, you know, whatever land-based telescopes we had looking at these things and thinking we were getting such clear, you know, beautiful imagery of these places. And then Hubble comes along and it's just like, you know, my arm is reaching way up, you know, how much better those images we captured were, and then just Hubble to Webb and the depth and clarity. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of like I remember looking at Earth from space the first time and every time out the window was, man, you had this impression of what it was going to be like. You'd seen the pictures and videos. And then you looked out the window and it was like, holy moly, that is just the brightest, most crystal clear, colorful, every color you think Earth's going to be planet below you. And I remember thinking that when I was first seeing the James Webb is like, man, it just keeps getting better. And we just keep seeing more and more and farther and farther, you know, I, I guess farther, maybe not be the word, but like um, longer and longer ago of <laughs> um, what things were like and how, um, how we fit into it. Yeah, I know we talked a lot about that, you know, how there's so much great scientific data coming down for this, but for the general public, these, these images are just, you know, amazing. I mean, I had the pillars of creation as my desktop wallpaper from Hubble yeah. for years. And now, <laughs> and now I have a brand new one to put on there, but I mean, 
and for someone yeah. like you who who is trying to get us here on Earth to change perspective and, and look at our place in this universe different, this has just got to be an additional tool in your toolbox to, to make that case, right? Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And I think it's another one of these like high five for the human robotic um, partnership that we have in space and exploring space, both, you know, low Earth orbit, near Earth and distant, like, um, you know, something like Webb is allowing us to do. And, um, you know, my hope really through these images is just what you're what you're saying is that somehow, you know, in looking at them, that everybody who looks at them hopefully is thinking about, oh, my gosh, I'm on a planet in space. You know, this planet that is so beautifully here and taking, you know, in that perfect distance from the sun, all those things we've talked about before, you know, with respect to how this planet just supports our life and considering ourselves on this planet with respect to this beautiful pillars, you know, um, out there as well. And, um, and being in awe of it, you know, appreciating the awe and wonder of it, and then reflecting back from it on, wow, my feet, I'm standing on a planet and this whole place is designed to take care of me. And I better just turn around and do the same thing. Like really start being a crewmate and not a passenger. Right. We talked about that before too. It's such a big deal. And and you've been taking that message kind of around this planet recently. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the the outreach that that you have been doing. I've been following along. It looks super exciting. But bring us up to speed on some of the things you, that you've been up to since we last spoke. Yeah, it's really been fun. You know, the book came out. That was great. I think it's a really wonderful platform for for speaking to. Uh, you know, the lessons I learned, kind of the simple, yet I would argue compelling lessons that I learned from flying in space. And to be able to take that out in different ways through um, the work we continue to do with the Space for Art Foundation, really excited about that. Uh, We've continued to grow in the number of kids we work with around the world, um, still primarily in hospitals and refugee centers and orphanages around the world and uh, had the opportunity to complete another art spacesuit at the end of last year. I can't believe it's almost a year ago now. Um, Isn't it crazy? Called Beyond, where we collected artwork from at least one child in every country on the planet um, to create this suit as the ambassador for Spaceship Earth, reminding us of this connection between personal and planetary health, which was really, I mean, I think it's really key in general, but um, we realized that kids everywhere through the whole COVID timeframe when we were collecting this art were living in isolation in a way that they probably never had before. We're thinking about their personal and their family's health and well-being in a way they never had before and just trying to rally all of them into um, this understanding of, of personal and planetary health, which again speaks bigger to Um, The idea that we always talk about, Brendan, you and I, of how everything we're doing in space is ultimately about improving life on Earth. And being an advocate for the planet. Advocate for the planet is just overlooking, it's just (laughs) wrapping around all of that. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll share some links in the show notes to some of those organizations. We've been speaking with Nicole Stott. She's a former NASA astronaut. Her book is Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Absolutely, Brendan. Anytime. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org slash space. Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Editorial guidance this week from Talia Blake. Thanks, Talia. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.